0: I'm happy I get to take off my mask. (laughs) Good morning, everybody. Today we have a reading from the first book of Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect who are all sojourners of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Yeah, it is nice taking off the mask. That's a good feeling. Um, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. I wasn't here last week, so I didn't get to say that. So. It's good to be back amongst the living. Um, Thank you for your prayers and your concerns. Um, Last year when I got sick, I was out for four days. I was just dead on the couch. This was one day and I was better. So um, I think you guys are praying better is what that means. (laughs) Praying harder. Want to invite our children to Children's Church. Uh, Kathy will meet you at the back. And uh, as they go, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, your wounds have paid our ransom. And Lord, we look forward to that date when hope comes to its fruition and prayer turns into praise. And uh, that that glorious day of your return, when we'll see you as you are. Uh, Lord, strengthen us until that day, we ask. and Father, I want to pray for our friend, our previous pastor, our brother in Christ, Daniel Holmquist. Lord, as his... um, uh, Cyst has been diagnosed with cancer. Lord, when I spoke with him this week, it's possible that the cancer has spread to his liver. And so we just pray for uh, a rapid biopsy that they would be able to determine if the cancer has spread. Uh, Thank you for um, miraculously opening opportunities for him to be seen very quickly and to start chemo soon. Lord, would you be with our brother and strengthen him in the inner man as the exterior is wasting away. Uh, Lord, we pray for Linda, his wife, that you would be with her and strengthen her as she watches her husband, who has, um, as long as I can remember, never shown a moment of weakness. Has always been a very strong and, and, and engaged man. Go through this, Lord. Would you pray? I pray that you would be with her and, and equip her to help him through that. Father, we pray for Calvary Evangelical Free Church in New Jersey, Lord, that as they watch their pastor. Um, go through this, uh, this struggle with cancer, Lord, that it would be challenging to them, Lord, that you would stir in them a real genuine desire for prayer, that it would be more than just uh, something muttered over a meal, but Lord, that they would be aware that they are praying to the true and the living God on behalf of their pastor and their friend. And so, Lord, would you work all of these things together for our good, especially for Daniel's good as we think of this, and, and just bring him healing and, strength and Lord, I pray that um, his, uh, his engagement with cancer would be a chance for him to talk about the glory and the mercy and the love of God. So have mercy on him, we pray. Uh, bless his, uh, his efforts and, uh, and his church. And, Father, we, uh, we want to praise you and thank you for uh, Matt and Becca Stromberg getting their visas to the United Kingdom. Lord, they can now go and, and do the work that you have called them to. Uh, working amongst uh, people um, in the dispersion, uh, the diaspora people in, uh, in uh, England. And so would you continue to pave that path for them and prepare the way? And, Lord, I pray that you would give them many miraculous provisions so that when they get there and people ask, they, they have stories to tell about how their God provided. And so uh, we're, we're rejoiced with them, and we look forward to their trip and uh, their beginning of their ministry there. So bless, bless their efforts, we ask. Lord, as we now turn to 1 Peter, uh, we pray that you would use your word to fit us and equip us to be your people in this world, to be strangers and yet salt and light. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you come and and, uh, fit this message with your meaning, with your intention? And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, it is far enough away from uh, Christmas, that I think we can talk about the secular version of Christmas now without confusing the two, right? It's, it's been a couple of weeks. The, the secular Christmas focuses mostly on Santa Claus, right? I mean, you get Frosty the Snowman, but he's, he's like a secondary character, it's mostly about Santa Claus. And what Santa Claus is about is is about elves and naughty and nice lists and reindeer and sleighs, and, uh, and that, that's the mythology that, that our, our secular culture tells. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the aspects of that is the reindeer. Now, reindeer are pretty rare to begin with. Anybody ever seen a reindeer? I don't think I've ever seen one. Um, they're rare to begin with, but these reindeer are even rarer because they fly. So that makes them really a unique, odd group of, of beings. And so these, these, rare air, uh, um, these rare reindeer can fly. And that makes them actually somewhat desirable. They're they're admirable. They're things that we look up to. But there is desirable and then there's different. And when it comes to being different, that can get you in a little bit of trouble. And so one of the reindeer whose name is Rudolph has this unique proboscis. He's got a nose that is particularly red, <laughs> rather shiny, and you could even say it glows. And what this does for Rudolph is it does not say, you are a rare creature. You're a reindeer. You're the rarest of a rare creature. You're a flying reindeer. It says you're a freak because you got a red nose. And so all the other reindeer used to laugh and call him names. And, and so there's, there's this idea of being different and being special. And then there's the idea of going just a little too far. And so Rudolph had this problem. It, it, his, his uniqueness Went farther than the other unique uh, animals, and so it got him ostracized and ridiculed. Until one extraordinarily rare event, as rare as those things are, there was a rare event that happened. On a Christmas Eve, there was fog at the North Pole. Now, to get fog at the North Pole, it doesn't form well because the the um, the air is so thin or is so cold that water vapor doesn't evaporate into it very well. So the only time you really get fog at the North Pole is where there's a lot of water and the temperature comes up. And so you only really get fog around the the edges at the coast. So it would be extraordinarily rare and that only happens by the way in the summer. In the winter, in the middle of winter it would be extraordinarily rare to get fog around the North Pole. It just doesn't happen. But one winter it did. And so the reindeer couldn't take off. They apparently don't have weather control radar for reindeer. The reindeer apparently don't have night vision goggles so they could navigate through fog or anything like that. And so the fleet's grounded. And what saved them was this one particular aspect of uh, electromagnetic uh, light. And that is the lower the frequency, the more it penetrates fog. And so the lower end of this, the electromagnetic spectrum, visible visual visual light is red, and that's able to penetrate to pierce the fog. So the um, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, over um, over uh, Christmas time, was analyzing some of the myth of Christmas. And at first, I was a little bit perturbed because Neil deGrasse Tyson is a great astrophysicist and an idiot on a lot of other things, and he doesn't recognize the difference. So I thought he was being kind of dorky, but he made an excellent point. He said, Santa knows physics. Of all colors, red penetrates fog best. That's why Benny, the blue-nosed reindeer, didn't get the gig. So there is something unique, something different about Rudolph that made him stand out and be ostracized and looked down upon until it wasn't. Until the right time, and then it turned out to be the exact perfect thing that was needed at that point. And so I bring up the story of Christmas, the secular story of Christmas, and it's kind of funny and cute and it's, you know, built on commercialism and Coca-Cola and, you know, that kind of thing. But it does tell an interesting story about how you can be a freak until you're not. (laughs) until it's necessary. And so when we begin this, this new chapter, this new preaching series, 1 Peter, as we begin to look at that, what we need to recognize is that we are red-nosed reindeer as Christians. You, human race is unique on the earth. There is something different about us. We're not like the other animals. We can fly. We can go to other planets. We've been to the moon. No other animal has gotten even close to that. But as Christians in that group of unique beings, we stand out as freaks. And so I want you all to know, in a metaphorical sense, you all have red noses. Okay? We all have red noses, and it's going to be okay. So what Peter is going to tell us, the name of this this sermon series is Hope in the Dispersion. And and what it's going to tell us is that we are those kind of oddballs scattered throughout and yet there is something admirable and right about us. And so what Peter is going to try to do through this book is give us hope for being freaks in the world, scattered throughout the world. Being the oddballs is not a bad thing. So let's, let's start. We're only going to do the first two verses. There is plenty to cover here. Peter has a lot to say right off the bat. So it begins with Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that right off the bat, Peter had always been accepted as the author of this epistle up until the 18th century when we got much smarter. We got much smarter than anybody else. And then critical scholar says, well, it can't be Peter because the Greek is too good. To which I reply, you knew Peter well then, did you? The Greek is good, that doesn't mean Peter didn't write it. But let's remember who Peter was. They may not know Peter, but let's remember who this man was. Peter's story starts in Galilee. He grew up in a fisher's family. He's a fisherman. He's, he's a young entrepreneur, he's doing pretty well. He, he had a boat, he had nets, he had what he needed. He would go out on the Sea of Galilee, he'd fish, come back, they'd sort the fish out, and perhaps a fishmonger would come by and buy fish from him and then go sell them in the market. Or perhaps his family would pick it up and go sell it in the market. But that's how he made his living, it was off fishing. And he did pretty well, he did okay. He had a, he had a decent business going. Um, Peter was also apparently an observant Jew. He apparently paid close attention to the religion that he was brought up in. And I say that because later in life, in Acts chapter 10, when he has this vision, and the vision is this net comes down or this this sheet comes down with all the different critters in it, and the voice says, rise up, kill, and eat. Peter's response is, never, my lord. I have never let any unclean thing enter my mouth. So he's, he's observed the kosher laws. He's never eaten anything unclean. So what you get is this picture of this, this middle-class, blue-collar, working Jew who is observant, goes to synagogue. He, he is, um, he's just kind of, you and I, just kind of doing our thing. Until, until he met Jesus one day. And then everything's different. Everything's very different for this man. Now he leaves his boats and his nets, and he travels with this itinerant preacher, And and he is enamored of this man. He is so blown away by this man's kindness, his love, his teaching. He watches him heal people. He watches him raise the dead. There's a point where uh, they're on the boat. Peter is a fisherman. He's been on the sea a number of times. The storm is so bad that they're fighting. They are worried they're going to drown. When suddenly he sees Jesus walk across this this turbulent sea, And a man who has sailed this ocean a number of times says, you tell me and I'll walk out to you. And so Peter walks on the water with him for a little bit and then begins to sink. He's too much like us, I'm afraid, (laughs) to really pull it off. But the big change comes at at Pentecost because when Jesus is about to die, he's he's announced to his followers, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified. Peter says, I will never abandon you. I don't care if everybody else runs off, I'm with you, Jesus. And the next words we hear, hear him say is, I never knew him. He, he abandoned him. He he turned away. And yet, that's not the end of Peter's story. So there's times when we're going to wrestle and struggle and be like, oh, it's hard to believe, or it's hard to engage, and I, sometimes I don't feel it, and and I never knew him. I don't, you know. But Dane Ortland, who uh, wrote a book that was on the Trinity Reads table, but has sold out, called Gentle and Lonely, Uh, this week he tweeted, pre-Pentecost Peter, I don't know him, Luke 2257, post-Pentecost Peter, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Peter knows him. There has been a significant change. This is Peter. Now, the next thing that Peter says is he is an apostle. When it comes to that word apostle, we tend to kind of front load it with a lot of meaning. Um, We assume when we talk about the word apostle, what we mean is one of the 12, those specially commissioned by Jesus Christ to build his church, authorized uh, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament. They are the pillar and the foundation of the church, that kind of thing. But the term apostle, At its root, what it means is one who is sent. And so in the Greek language, it was occasionally used of a uh, a dignitary or an ambassador. They were sent to go tell a message. But really what it means at its root is just one who is sent. So how was Peter sent? How was he a sent one? Well, the first time we see him being sent is Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6. Jesus sent out the 12, instructing them, go nowhere, among the Gentiles, and to enter no village, or no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the first way that Jesus sends uh, Peter is he sends them to the lost sheep of Israel. He sends them again later in Luke 10, when he sends out 72 people, and the, the commission is slightly different. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, in every town and place where he himself was about to go. So again, he's traveling throughout Israel. He's sent by Jesus to do that. So Peter is sent in that way. There's another way that Peter is sent. And that's in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission. Jesus' command in the Great Commission is, go. I'm sending you. You're sent. Go. Make disciples of all nations. And so that is a sending. That is another way that Peter is an apostle um it's repeated in Luke or in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus says you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the othermost parts of the earth he sent his disciples so in in that sense Peter is an apostle a sent one and and that word apostle just means what we would call i think a, a missionary so in Acts 14:14 14, 14, when they go to Iconium Um, it's Barnabas and Paul are are visiting, and what what Luke tells us in 14.14, he says, but the apostles, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas wasn't an apostle in the same way that Peter was. He wasn't one of the 12 sent out, but he was an apostle. Or think of Romans chapter 16, where it talks about Andronicus and Junia. They were outstanding among the apostles. And there's a couple of ways to understand that. I think what it means is Junia and Andronicus were really great missionaries. So in one sense, it just means a missionary, what we would call a missionary, somebody sent to go proclaim the gospel to somebody else. They are sent. Now, in Peter's case, we do have to put this huge qualification on it because Peter is not just a missionary. He was one of the original 12. And so the 12 have a unique position. They have a unique place in church history. That's why in Acts chapter 1, Peter himself stands up and says, okay, Judas is dead, we have to replace Judas. And he quotes scripture saying, this is why we have to replace Judas. And so they vote to replace one of the 12. And so the 12 have a unique position. Peter is a very unique position because Jesus looked at him and said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Peter is that 12, but he's like the leader of the 12. Now, there's some dispute over what it means. You are the rock, and I will build my church. Roman Catholics think that means that Peter is the first first pope and that he has this great super authority in all the church and the bishop of Rome and everything. I don't think we have to go with Rome on that. I think what it means is what it says. Peter. (laughs) You're the rock that I'm going to build my church on. You're, you're the person I'm going to entrust to go out and start doing these things. It doesn't establish an office forever, a Peterine office like that, that, that they're going to do forever. What did Peter do? Peter was sent. He went to the nations. Peter is the one who went to Caesarea and first preached to the Gentiles. He went to the, the house of the Roman centurion because God told him to, and he went and he preached there. So he is, in a sense... The rock on which the church is built. He is the beginning of that. But we're all living stones built into that same stir. So it's not like he's special that way. But he is kind of special. He is an apostle. And finally, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He, he, He is not just somebody sent in general to go preach. He is commissioned by Jesus Christ to go and preach the gospel. Now, who he preached to will become important in a moment. But consider who Jesus Christ sent him to. He sent him to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sent them. He sent him to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. That's who he sent him to. That's who he's an apostle to. So that's who our author is. That's who's writing us. A man, I am just, I love Peter in the Gospels because he's so much like me. (laughs) You know, everybody teases and jokes about, oh, he says all the stupid stuff. Hey, you just said it too. (laughs) You would have. I would have. So I love that Peter is one of the apostles that we get to be with him, that he gets to stand there and be us because we couldn't do it. So Peter is writing to us. Now, who is he writing to? He writes to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. I want to take that one in reverse order and work my way backwards on that. So first of all, he writes to um, people who are in the dispersion. The, The Greek word is diaspora, those who are scattered abroad. Um, it was actually a term, a, a kind of a technical term that was used almost exclusively of the Jews who did not live in their homeland. They were uh, part of the dispersion. When Jesus at one point is talking with the, the Pharisees, he says, where I'm going to go, you can't follow. And they ask, is he going to the dispersion? And, and what they're asking, is he going to go out and, and travel among the nations or is he going to stay here? So that's that idea of the dispersion is it, it's, you're not in your home. You're scattered abroad. You're scattered everywhere else. But these, these, this dispersion, he talks about the exiles of the dispersion. Now, I think exile is a poor choice for translation here. Um, it's accurate. It's not, it's not a bad idea. I mean, we get what an exile is, right? But for me, when I think of exile in a biblical sense, I think of the exile, where Israel was swept away by the Assyrians because of their faithlessness to God, because their kings constantly worshipped false gods, and so God sent them into exile. I think of exile as when the Babylonians came down and took away the southern two tribes. They were sent into exile for 70 years to punish them for their wrongdoing. So in a biblical sense, I think exile is a poor choice because it's weighted in the idea that if you're in exile, you're in trouble. You're being punished. But for us, our king will never worship a false god. Our priest will never set up a false idol in our temple. Our prophet will never tickle our ears with lies. It's Jesus Christ. He can only remain faithful. So in a sense, church, you can never go in exile. We don't have a homeland. There's not one plot of property in the world that we say this belongs to the church. So we can't go into exile that way. So I don't think exile is the best choice. I think another way of saying it might be sojourners, but that's not a word we use very often. When was the last time you used sojourners in a sentence? Do it today, three times. I, 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 it gets the idea, but the idea of sojourners is, think of uh, when, e, uh, when uh, Israel left Egypt, when they departed from Egypt, it was a mixed multitude. And what the law will later tell them is, this law applies to you and to the sojourners with you those strangers who are not really Jews who are traveling with you, you can't make them work on the Sabbath. This applies to them as well. So Sojourners kind of gets the idea. I think the best one comes from the New American Standard and the King James to those who, are, who reside as aliens. To those who reside as aliens. In other words, a resident alien. And that's really better idea of what's going on. So what is a resident alien? Um, some of you may be resident aliens. What that means is you're not a citizen of this country. But you have a green card or you have a passport that allows you to be here. You're not a tourist. In other words, you're not taking off next week and going home. You're here for the long term, but this is not your country. This isn't where you're at. You're, you're functioning as part of society. You're, you're engaged and enrolled here. So, for example, a buddy of mine from high school, Tony, I didn't know this until recently. His family immigrated to the United States when he was five. He came from Sicily. He's Italian. He was a resident alien until about five or six years ago when he got his, resident, his, uh, his um, citizenship. I was like, dude, that's way overdue. He had 50 years as a resident alien. But I'll tell you what Tony did. Tony went to my public high school. He was in the band with me. He was functioning as a citizen. He just didn't have his citizenship. Citizenship. After high school, I took off and went in the Air Force. Tony and his brothers started a bakery, Michigan bread. And and they were participating, regular parts of society, but they weren't American. And Tony loved everything, loves everything about America, except I think he thinks Italian food's probably better. I'm not sure I can argue with him on that one. But Tony was never an American until about five or six years ago. He could have been asked to leave at any moment because his home country was Italy. That's what it means to be a resident alien, is you're here, you're participating, you're engaged, you get some of the benefits, but it's not your home. And so when, we, when, when Peter writes to us as exiles or aliens or resident aliens, that describes who we are. Brothers and sisters, first and foremost, you are a Christian. You, you are not, first and foremost, an American. You have an allegiance, not first and foremost to the Constitution of the United States, but to a king. And so he you need to hear this. We need to remember this, this important fact. You have a red nose. You're different. You stand out. And so when, when we talk about being exiles, we're, we're talking about people who are not at home where they are. We're a third thing. We're a weirdo. We're odd. And you get that from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 32. Paul says, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks. So either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, right? But then he goes on, or to the church of Christ. So there are three categories in the world. There's Jew, there's Gentile, and there's us. And that's what makes us resident aliens. That's what makes us odd. That's what makes us stand out. So, America is where we live, but it's not ultimately our home. it's, It's where we need to be because this is where God has planted us. We get all the benefits, all the blessings of this great and wonderful country, but ultimately we have to look at it and go, I don't live there. In eternity, I will not be an American. In eternity, I will be one of God's people. This is really important because something's going on in our nation, something is changing. And if we're not aware of it, if we have accidentally shifted our allegiance, we're going to be caught in a bad place. Um, there was a um, article at uh, Vox, that's um, a website, and they were talking about uh, this very event, this very change that's happening in America. And they cite a 2016 book by a man named Robert Jones. And I think he describes, he catalyzes the shift that's happening, the, the, the thing that we need to be aware of very well in just a few words. He says, We live in a world where it is declining that, um, well, I forget how he says it. Let me just read the quote Where few gave a second thought to saying Merry Christmas. Where few gave a thought, second thought to saying Merry Christmas to a stranger on the street a world of shared rhythms that punctuated the week. Wednesday spaghetti suppers or Wednesday Bible study and prayer meetings, invocations from local pastors under the Friday night lights at the local high school football game, and Sunday blue laws that shuttered Main Street for the Sabbath. That was how it was. That's what is declining in America. That's fading. Now, the problem for us as Christians is we have identified that with being a Christian. Because for, because of God's grace, our culture has been very amenable to Christianity. Christianity in a huge, immeasurable way formed Western culture. That doesn't mean Western culture was Christian. It meant it was informed by it. America was formed and shaped by a Christian ethos, a Christian understanding of the world. And so we did things like Benedictions or opening prayers at the football game and, and those kinds of things. But those are fading. They're going away. It, it's getting worse. And what I want to say is that I don't know what a Christian nation means. I don't know what that would look like, but America's not a Christian nation in that sense. So let me give you an example from World Magazine, August 2002. Or August 2000. Uh, George Barna did a survey. 75% of Americans, including more than 40% of born again evangelicals, agreed that the Bible teaches that God helps those who help themselves. If we're a Christian nation, we are terrible disciples. Now, there are Christians in this nation, and the idea that I'm trying to get a point across here is that our culture has been shaped and formed by Christianity, and so we've gotten comfortable we've gotten used to being represented properly on television we've gotten used to being seen as a benefit the reason that we don't pay taxes as a church is because a long time ago it was a benefit to have a church in neighborhood that was huge the church would feed the hungry they would deal with alcoholism they would help the local people and so of course we don't want to tax that now you try opening a church and, and the first question is, well, we're going to lose tax revenue on that. We're not seen as a benefit anymore. The, the whole thing is shifting. And where I want us to be really careful is when it comes to politics. Because politics is seductive. It's power. And so, for example, at uh, a uh, December 19th political rally, Donald Trump Jr. said, and I quote, We've turned the other cheek, and I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing, okay? It's gotten us nothing while we're seated ground on every major institution of our country. Donald Trump Jr. is saying, we tried the Christian thing, turn the other cheek. It doesn't work, and and if you think he's too far removed from his father, candidate Donald Trump in 2016 was asked what his favorite Bible verse was. He said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. For a little context, that comes from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. Our politicians are telling us, we can help you. We, we can help. I understand you're, you're losing authority, you're losing power, you're losing significance. We can help you. You like those reindeer games? We can get you in. You just need to turn down the nose some. Just just lose a little bit of the red. Look, we got a little bit of red in our nose. We're, We're with you. We understand. But just dial it down. And we can get you in. We can get you power. We can get you authority. And the seduction of it is we liked being culturally dominant. And we don't like losing cultural dominance. Wasps ran America for a long time. We did a decent job. But recently when they did the, the, um, uh, the census they found out that white is no longer the predominant category for America anymore. We've dropped below 50 percent and now the minorities make it up. That's who we are as a nation. We've seen for the first time ever since they've been recording it that most people in America do not find churches or church or religion as a significant thing. We've become a less religious nation. Evangelicals are on the, 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 the decline. Actually, it's confusing because we're not declining, but I saw a survey where there were Jews, Muslims, and Hindu, um, not Hindus, Buddhists who said they were evangelical Christians, or evangelical. I don't even know what that word means anymore. But folks, what we've been used to is, is fading. And so this is why Peter is extraordinarily important for us. You are exiles of the dispersion It had become very comfortable in the West to live that way, but the West is moving, it has shifted. And so we need to make sure that we don't get caught in that shift and stand our ground. The biblical sexual ethic is sex is confined, it is built, it is intended for a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. That's what sex is supposed to be. Our culture now says sex is whatever you want, marriage is between any two people, Don't wait for two to last too long. It's going to be three, four, five. They have redefined what marriage is. The church can never do that. We have a biblical explanation of what it means. Our nose is going to grow more red. It's going to stand out. We're going to look more like freaks as we stand on the Bible in this this important moment. Now, put yourself back in Peter's day. Peter was a, a, a... believing Christian in the Roman Empire you want a culture that was less you couldn't find a Christ, a culture that was less Christian and so it was important for him to write to these people and say you are exiles of the dispersion and so we are feeling that now more and more that's why first Peter is going to be really important to us how on earth are we supposed to do this? How can you stand against this? How, what hope do we have to resist the prevailing tides of, of culture? Well, it's that last word that we haven't talked about yet. You are elect, exiles of the dispersion. You are elect. We will to use that to launch into the next verse then. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of the fo- the fo- God the Father. What we're talking about here is that God has known us from before the foundation of the world. He has said, here are my people. These are the ones that I'm going to redeem. These are the people I'm calling to myself. Here are my people. And so now what Peter reminds us is, that's who you are. That's what makes you an exile. That's what puts you in the dispersion is you're not like anybody else. You're called, you're chosen, you're elect. And it's according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Now, there are different Christian traditions in how to understand election and foreknowledge. Um, one of the ideas is God looked down the corridors of time, and he saw who would believe in him, and therefore he chose them. Um, I don't think that's the best answer. Um, for me, I think of John the Baptist. Um, did John the Baptist in the womb hear and believe a gospel? Well, no. No. But when Mary's voice rang in his mother's ears, he leapt for joy. He was foreknown. He was predestined. He was chosen. He was regenerate somehow in the womb. It's odd, but it, it happens. And so when we talk about foreknowledge, we're, we're saying God has known beforehand who he would save. He has always carved out his people throughout the history of the world. And that's what the whole Old Testament is about, is we can look at what was going on in Israel. There were faithful people in Israel, and there were unfaithful people in Israel. And as the nation swapped from king to king, things changed. And yet, Elijah could say, I'm the only one. And God would tell him, no, no, no. There are 500 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. I've reserved them for myself. So the first thing that we're told is that we are elect exiles in the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of the Father. God has chosen you you can stand. It's doable. You have this this entire work of God on your behalf. He He is working together to get you through it. And it's not just God the Father. This is proper Trinitarian theology here, the foreknowledge of the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. So the Father has chosen you. He's foreknown you. And what's he doing for you now? The sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctification comes from Latin, from originally a Greek idea, that kind of thing. The the word is sanctus. And what sanctus means is holy. And so to be sanctified means that the Holy Spirit is working within you because God has chosen you. He's foreknown you. He's working within you to make you holy. And what we know from the scriptures is what that means is he's conforming conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. So can you stand as an exile in a culture that is increasingly drifting away from you? Can you stand if you know that God has foreknown you? He has chosen you from before the foundations of the world. He has sent his Holy Spirit and has sealed you and is working actively. He's conspiring against you to make you holy, to transform you into the image of his son. Can you stand? Can you have hope in this dispersion if that's what God is up to? And then where are we going? What will we get to? Well, the last part is, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. For obedience to Jesus. That's where that political statement of, hey, we tried the turn the cheek thing doesn't work. You've got to abandon it. No, we're called, we are, we are chosen from before the foundation of the world. We're sealed in the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so when a politician, and I don't care who, which politician it is, it, I, I picked on Trump just because it was an easy quote. The Republicans or the Democrats will tell you the same thing. Look, all you've got to do is just give up this idea that, you know, just let women choose if they want to have a baby or not. That's all we're asking. And if they choose not to, then we'll just kill the baby. But it's okay. Just give up on that and join us, and we can make everything better. No, we are called to obedience to Jesus Christ. That was the Great Commission, wasn't it? Go, make disciples, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. That is what it means to be an exile. That's what it means to be a sojourner, a resident alien in this world, to obedience to Jesus Christ. How are you doing with obedience to Jesus Christ? This is where I get a little uncomfortable and look a little squirmish. I'm not so great at it sometimes, I, I miss the mark. That's why Peter doesn't end, put a period there. The next thing he says, is obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. This this is a a richly Jewish image is to sprinkle the blood on something was to make it holy, to sanctify it. When Moses had the tabernacle built and he, he brings the book of the law in and all the articles, the next thing he does is take some hyssop and sprinkle blood all over everything. That was a picture of what Jesus has done for us He's called us to obedience, and he knows we're not going to do it just yet. We're going to miss it. Even with the sealing and the work and the conspiracy uh, conspiracy of the Holy Spirit working in us to make us that way, we're still going to miss the mark. And so what he does is he comes and he sprinkles his blood on us and says, you're clean, you're different, you're mine. So it is for, uh, the, according to the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and to cover all of that, the sprinkling with his blood. This is the calling that we have, brothers and sisters. This is what we are called to be in this world. Not Jew, not Gentile, the, the church of Jesus Christ. That's who we're called to be. The good news is we have all of this conspiring to work on our, half, on our behalf. God is working to do that in us, to accomplish that. And so he ends with the sentence, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That kind of feels perfunctory. When you're reading through the Bible in a year and you get to the epistles in the New Testament, you hear it so much you just kind of glaze over it. Don't glaze over it. This is an actual wish on Peter's behalf for us. May grace and peace be multiplied to you individually because of the foreknowledge of the Father, because of the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, because of the sprinkling with Jesus' blood, may peace and grace be multiplied to you in the dispersion as freaks. Don't be ashamed of that red nose. They'll laugh and they'll they'll call us names, but that red nose will ultimately have a purpose. Jesus told you, you are salt and light to this world. There is something freakish about Christians and the love they have for each other, the love they share to the world, the hope that they have in the light of diminishing cultural significance. You are salt and light to the world. Our nose may not be needed yet. It's not foggy on Christmas yet. When it is, we'll shine like a beacon. We will be the lamp that, the light that you don't hide under a bushel basket. But in the meantime... Let's continue to obey Jesus Christ in all of this. Be suspicious of politicians who promise us everything. Be suspicious of advertisers who who promise us happiness. Be suspicious of anything that's going to take us away from who Jesus Christ is. And that's what Peter's going to do in the rest of this book. He's going to fit us for that. He's going to equip us with that, or for that mission. And so, Lord, we need it. We really do. Let's, Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that you have sealed us, that you are the guarantee, the down payment for the hope that awaits in the future, the the promise that we will inherit on that day. Lord, thank you for working in us, sealing us, preparing us, changing our heart, leading us toward obedience to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would not grieve you, Holy Spirit, but we would align with you that we would be more spiritual in the in the idea that we are acting in, in accordance with the Spirit. And Lord, Father, we are so grateful that you have foreknown us, that you have called us, you've elected us since the foundation of the world to your purposes, that we might glorify the name of your Son, that we might be a light to the world. And we don't base that on the idea that we're strong enough, smart enough, or get enough political clout. Lord, we base that on the idea that the f- The creator of the universe foreknew us and has elected us. Thank you for that. And Lord Jesus Christ, you will come. You will return. You came as an infant. You'll return as a conquering king. And Lord, we look forward to that day when you return to this earth, when you rule it with a rod of iron, when you dash the nations as as clay pots. Lord, when righteousness and peace reign. And Lord, until then, would you fit us for the work that you've called us to? Would you fill us with enough faith to trust that you're at work in us? And Lord, we, the elect exiles of the dispersion, we want to follow after you. And so lead us, we pray, in Christ's precious name. Amen.